WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. House and Senate GOP leaders want to intervene in a Curtis Hill lawsuit. The number two official at DCS abruptly resigns. Plus, a school accountability panel meets for the first time and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending July 26, 2019. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Built on a 100-plus year foundation of legal service, Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients stay ahead of a changing world. Working to develop an understanding of each client's needs to help build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Indiana House and Senate Republican leadership filed motions to insert themselves into a federal lawsuit against Attorney General Curtis Hill and the state, a lawsuit that involves Hill's alleged groping last year of a state lawmaker and three legislative staffers. The four women filed a federal lawsuit earlier this year. They accused Curtis Hill of sexual harassment and battery, and they accused the state of employment discrimination. That includes sexist or inappropriate comments allegedly made by lawmakers of both parties. House and Senate GOP leaders hired an outside attorney and want to intervene in the lawsuit. They argue the three staffers are their employees, and so the two chambers have a right to defend themselves against some of the accusations in the suit. They also say Attorney General Hill, whose office normally represents the legislature in court, has a conflict of interest in this case and shouldn't be allowed to speak for the General Assembly. According to documents filed with the court, the legislative leaders deny most of the women's allegations regarding employment discrimination. Is this the right move for legislative leaders? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, State House reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, should the legislative, legislative leaders be stepping in here? Well, you know, if I, were, if I were the legislative leaders, I would have no more faith in Creepy Curtis uh, defending me than they obviously uh, have. And there's always an issue on Title VII as to who the employer is. And I know that the House and the Senate hire and they have, they have uh, uh, handbooks and all about the rules, but the checks come from the state of Indiana. And so there is a little bit, you know, you, you, it's, tricky. It, it, it's a tricky question. So, you know, they're probably right to intervene. What this shows is that the state is going to be, or the taxpayers, I should say, are going to be on the hook for more and more legal fees, all as a result of the highest legal uh, judicial officer of the state of Indiana and conduct that is not only unbecoming any male, but certainly unbecoming the highest judicial officer in the state. And he's still the attorney general of the state of Indiana. It's a disgrace. And it's going to cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. With Curtis Hill's office normally being the one to represent the House and the Senate, and so them hiring an outside attorney and all of that, do, you almost, do they almost have to feel like they have to get involved in this case because of all the issues going on? Oh, clearly. And they've all, all, those, all those two leaders have both called for Curtis Hill to resign. So I agree with Andy. Yeah, taxpayers are going to be on the hook. But it's all up to Curtis Hill whether or not he, he, he decides to stick this out. And every time, you know, we talk about Curtis Hill about every other week, and the question is always left, is he out of the woods? 
But then, then two weeks later, we've got another headline, um, high-profile story about Curtis Hill and, and, and what, he's, what he's done here, which is not going to go away over the course of the next 16 months uh, between now and uh, the convention. And, now, and then, you know, if, a, if, he's, if he's re-nominated, then the, um, then the general election. So, you know, I think legislatively, this wasn't a political move. I think they just view themselves as the employer here. They just happen to also be public elected officials and need to be transparent about this. This is going to be a politically sticky situation, obviously, um, for Curtis Hill, certainly. Does the fact that they felt compelled to enter themselves in here, does, this, does that complicate things for the legislative leaders, politically speaking? Uh, I think actually the opposite, I th at least in their minds. They, by entering or seeking to enter uh, the suit and become uh, effectively part of it, I think the idea is to stave off uh, political uh, fallout. Uh, keep in mind, a lot of this is first blush sort of uh, approach because we don't have a lot of precedent for this sort of litigation where it involves somebody like the Attorney General. And by the way, I think he's probably referred to as the Chief Legal Officer, not the Chief Judicial Officer, which might come as news to the Chief Justice of the Indian well, Supreme Court. He's but, not yeah. the Chief but, Justice, well, that's a, right. But I mean, he is... Different branch of government. Chief different branch of government. Just, just, just keeping things correct. clean. Just Thank keeping you, things clean. Uh, well, I'll send you my bill. Uh, so I, I, whether they can stay out of, uh, it is sticky, as you suggest. Does this mean that they won't, there won't be any pushback, depending on how this unfolds? No. But I think the fact that they, they, they see that they have a part in this, they are mentioned in the, the suit throughout, how can they not, uh, it seems to me, want to at least have some say in how it unfolds right. through an attorney? Curtis Hill was not the only person named throughout this lawsuit in terms of accusations. Well, he was the only one named as a plaintiff. Right, Otherwise, it was just state of Indiana. But yeah, the accusations are full of lawmakers saying things about these staffers, of fellow colleagues saying things about their staffers. So part of what's at issue is sort of the the environment that these right, women are in. So I think it's absolutely appropriate for the House and Senate leadership to be involved. Right. Well, a top Department of Child Services official brought in specifically to help shape up the embattled agency, has resigned. Associate Director Todd Meyer abruptly stepped down after just one year on the job. DCS created a new position, Associate Director, when it recruited Todd Meyer from his post as a county prosecutor. He was assigned to meet recommendations that came from an independent evaluation of DCS. Particularly, Meyer helped lead an overhaul of the agency's legal team. He hired more attorneys and bolstered training. Now. He's left the agency, and neither the Holcomb administration or DCS will say why. Meyer spoke with Indiana Public Broadcasting just two weeks ago about progress at DCS. Things are never done. You know, it, it is always going to be um, a process of continual quality improvement. Michael Bryan, this isn't a good look, is it? Well, as departures of high-ranking DCS officials go, this was pretty mundane. Um, so far, at least. But look, I mean, I think that what's brought, uh, from a larger picture standpoint, outside of personnel issues, things are going in a positive direction. Case, cases are down 17%. Morale is up, and turnover is down, and, and uh, uh, incomes are up for, uh, for caseworkers. So I think the, the metrics that they set out to put in place a year ago are, mo are moving in a positive direction. Three weeks ago, we had uh, the laws on, on a Senate Bill 1 that took effect 
uh, on July 1st. That was a top priority for the Holcomb administration and, and Republican legislators. So there's a lot of positive around DCS, and, and the, the numbers are bearing that out in terms of how the agency is being managed. As much as the metrics are improving, and they are undoubtedly improving, you, you talk to foster families who are still really unhappy with, with what they feel is just not enough change, at least not fast right, enough. Right, and you also have the lawsuit about whether cases are being closed prematurely and whether they're being thoroughly investigated. Plus a different lawsuit um, about every child needing legal representation right, at the agency. Right, so you've got all of those issues. This was supposed to be a priority for the Holcomb administration. This individual was going to come in and shape up the agency, and we were going to put children first, and there wasn't going to be any problem. I'd like a show of hands who think that this guy left under this good circumstances. This is a Democratic circumstances. presidential debate. We're not raising <laughs> I would like a show We're of not hands as to whether this was done not playing your for game. a good reason. If he was going on to another job, that would have been announced. So I want to know what the back channel story on this is and whether those accusations about cases being closed without proper investigation are accurate or not. That gets to maybe the biggest issue here is they didn't announce this. If Kara no. Kenny at RTV6 was the one who broke the story and then everybody else found out about it, is that the biggest issue? Is that the lack of transparency yeah, about Yeah, I mean, when there's a void out there, it just lets the rumor mill, you know, run wild. And the fact is, you know, they couldn't even put out a simple release saying he's spending more time with family. You know, that's the normal one we hear. But we didn't even get that. Um, several of us asked for the resignation letter, were denied. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't look good as far as running this supposedly transparent, uh, you know, agency. And, yes, while things are improving, they're still not perfect. There's still a lot of work to be done. Just today we got a new report. The number of child abuse and neglect deaths are up this year. So, Or in the most recent year for yeah. which we have data now. I was going to ask you to speculate wildly about what's going on here, but what we do, what we just raise my hand. Yeah, 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 you can raise hands. What we do know, though, is that there. I mean, Todd Meyer came in to oversee the the recommendations from that big report a year ago, and particularly he was focused on overhauling the uh, legal side of the agency. And we've just in the last couple of months seen significant changes at the top of the legal side of the agency culminating ultimately in Meyer's resignation. Does that just add more fuel to this speculative fire? It may, but I, I think the first read on it, if you go back a month or two on of what to read into the changes, was that here's what he's doing what he was brought in to do, which is hire more attorneys, uh, beef up their training, change. Well, he wasn't hiring change, more. They were losing more. Change. Well, well they were getting he, rid of more. Well, well getting rid of. There yeah. were some retired, some, you know, sometimes. But that's uh, not were, hiring. They have hired, though. They have hired, though. So I think the initial interpretation was, okay, he's doing... He's really he's, making, he's changes. Cha making changes. Now, part of that equation falls apart when you see that he's one of the people who, who's on the way out. And again, I would echo what's been said here. If ever an agency needed transparency uh, to, you know, not just typical kind of level grade A transparency, but that times 10... It's this agency because especially right now, We're especially, not getting it. We especially chose... right now, and that is unfortunate. And I think uh, uh, I don't know if there is a. I'm sure there's not a cover up, but, uh, hey, but why are you sure of that? I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt. Well, but, you better not be but sure. But until you I didn't hope. raise hands one way or the other. Now relax. Mm -hmm. But unless if you want to cause that that belief to simmer or give that appearance, you do precisely what's been done thus far always the the best thing to do it seems to me 
answer every question that's asked and flood people with materials that I are mean, out there. Unless you don't like the answer. Unless you don't like the answer. So I, I, I'm willing to change my okay, answers good. depending so on So don't be happens, so sure. Well, I, I was just being polite. That's A 15-member committee created by the General Assembly will consider how school accountability metrics could line up with new diploma requirements and students' post-graduation plans. And all of that may end up, may upend, rather, the way schools are graded. During the panel's first meeting this week, members sketched out broad ideas. Some say schools shouldn't be held responsible if students change diploma tracks, for instance. Others asked how to value students' post-graduation success when it varies from a college degree to farming. During public comment, one Indiana high school principal urged the panel to move to a dashboard that measures many things instead of the current A to F grading system for schools. The school accountability panel will meet five more times with recommendations due to lawmakers by November. Nikki Kelly, could we see the A to F system go away? I mean, anything is theoretically possible. I just feel like they look down like every couple years and go, oh, it's been two years, let's change the system. I, I mean, I, I feel so bad for schools trying to keep up with everything they're changing so often. I also feel a little bad for kids because I feel like we're pushing down earlier and earlier for them to like pick a track. Am I going to be a nurse? Am I going to go to a four-year college? Am I going to get a, you know, a welding degree? And, and I just feel bad that we're pushing them so young and no wonder they're switching their minds and stuff a lot. At, you know, they yeah, don't the know what 18, they want to do. At 18, you were figuring out what you wanted to do. Now it's eight. Yeah, know. we used to have an yeah. education system that was about exposing children to a lot of different possibilities and then they decide what they want to do. But now it's just so early with having them pick and have to go one way. God forbid a kid doesn't know what they want to do. Some of, some of the things that they're looking at changing are, are not always a result of state legislative changes. Sometimes it's stuff they're getting from the federal government too, to be fair. But with this, can they, I mean, even if they ultimately decide that getting rid of A to F is the way to go, is it hindered by the fact that, yes, it's just another time where we're changing this I think whole system? But when you look at the accountability standards, which have changed now potentially, what, three times uh, since 2011 when the A through F system was implemented or the move to implement took place. And then you layer in the number of changes with the tests, the standardized tests uh, and the gateway exams, or it's not going to be a gateway exam, or maybe it'll be this exam off the shelf, or maybe it'll be a self-produced self test. You put all that together, and it, and it almost is an annual uh, kind of, of change or occurrence. And I think that is very frustrating for, I mean, think if, uh, if, if in the classroom, students, uh, the, you know, the subject matter changed uh, from year to year. The, I know new math was new math, and I, I, I never understood the difference between old math and new math, but I know there was an uproar around it. Uh, this is a lot more change. This is a lot math. more. I didn't. That's why I went into this business. <laughs> but, but, but the fact remains, you know, this is the kind of situation where the goalpost, oh, let's use a sports metaphor because Anne loves them so much. The goalpost is, is definitely being moved. And I think they're changing that, sports. The they are changing sports. I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, let me ask the basic question here, which is, is the A to F system a good system for evaluating schools? It's a great system for people that are trying to understand how their school ranks. And that was the whole point. The whole, the, 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 bringing A to F into existence did not bring in accountability. It made people understand the previous system of accountability that existed forever, but nobody understood where their school lined up. So it was very much a parent, kind of public-facing um, way to measure how, how, how schools were doing. So if you get away from it, you get away from 
you know, and it's, and it's forced. Frankly, a lot of these changes are motivated by the fact that parents go, why is my school a D school every year or a C school every year? And, and so then more policy changes come to try to improve that or, or to put uh, failing schools in some kind of, you know, on, on some kind of path to improvement. Um, and so getting rid of A to, a to F, unless you go to some other system that is equally understood in, in the system and A to F was perfect for that purpose, um, you basically just go back to a system where nobody really knows how their school is doing. The public, I mean, these educators and policymakers may, um, but it was really about does the public understand how our schools are performing? Yeah, is the issue here not that you get an A, B, C, D, or F, but how you earn those grades? This system is so royally screwed up, okay? I mean, I, I, would, I would expect if the, <laughs> the governor was interested in education and children, we would have some leadership here, and we don't. I mean, the fact of the matter is A through F for the school. Do, you know, do, do the bricks answer the question? What, the school is, is, you know, this entity. The number of children in it changes every year. The teachers change mostly every year, and, and yet we're grading the building, it, the, the whole thing is nonsensical. And when you understand how little we're paying teachers and how much we're requiring them to change and adapt year after year after year, it's no wonder nobody's going into teaching anymore. It's no wonder. You'd have to have you know, your head examined to walk into that system where certain teachers who are required to have master's degrees are being paid the same entry level as a teacher back in 1984, not adjusted for inflation. Okay? I mean, it's a disgrace when you think about it. And here we are changing the rules yet again, and we don't know what we're doing. But, you know, that's what they do. I don't think she likes it. (laughs) I'd give that answer a D. I would like, I would like, you probably would, maybe an F. Stability stability is what needs to be happening. That's what happens. I think the answer is all about growth, though. Isn't that how we're grading everything? We're grading the outcome. Except if you're already at the top. And then if you don't improve when you're at the top, you go down. That's what's baked into it, and that's why they keep changing it. They keep having, and we do have an obligation. But but if if you do have an obligation to continue changing it, you identify policies you think can improve it. Even when you're trying to fine tune it, it just feels like. Again. Again. Oh, I again. know. Yeah. Oh, there's again. a lot of fatigue about continuing to have this conversation. Things seem to, to not be working or not working fast not. enough. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. But if, if, if the policymakers in this area believe that there's a set of changes they can make on an annual basis or review on an annual basis that are, are going to improve the outcome, they have an obligation to pursue it, and that's what they do. Each right, time year. Now, right. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should Indiana move away from its A to F grading system for schools? A yes or B no? Last week's question, will Governor Eric Holcomb win a second term in 2020? 70% of you say yes, 30% say no. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, Special Counsel Robert Mueller testified before Congress this week about the report he and his team prepared into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Across the two House hearings, Democrats tried to prompt Robert Mueller into repeating or confirming what they view as the most damning information from the Mueller report, though Mueller often danced around such direct answers. Uh, Mr. Mueller, does ordering the termination of the head of a criminal investigation constitute an obstructive act? Uh, That would be... uh... Uh, I, uh, I, 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 I Let me refer, refer you to the report. Republicans sought, as they've done since the report was released, to portray it as unbalanced and unfair towards the president. You made the decision on the Russian interference. 
You, you couldn't have indicted the president on that, and you made the decision on that. But when it came to obstruction, you threw a bunch of stuff up against the wall to see what would stick. Well, and that is I, I fundamentally unfair. To, I would not agree to that uh, characterization uh, at all. John Schwannis, was this a wash for both sides, really? Probably. I mean, I think there was a hope on the part of, of Democrats that they could elicit um, some sort of elaboration uh, by, on a Robert Miller's part. That they could uh, run some moment that they instance. could, you know, if in, I listened to most of it, it's, you know, if A is B, and he'll, he would agree to that, and then C, A, B is C, you would say, therefore, that A is equivalent. And he wouldn't, unless it right. said it in the report. Right. Uh, and so that really deprived uh, probably both sides of any sort of ammunition or any talking points that could be used to, for uh, partisan gain in this uh, scenario. His performance, Robert Mueller's actual performance was described by a lot of people as halting. He stumbled over his words a lot of times in answering uh, questions. Did that really play into this whole thing? I think he probably struggled a little with, he knew going in, he wanted to stick with what was in the report and what was in the report only, and therefore maybe it came off a little, I don't know, just not very eloquent. Yeah, smooth. Um, But in the end, nothing was ever going to come of that. Both sides are dug in, you know, it was really just a waste of time. Yeah, were these overhyped from the beginning? I didn't expect to hear uh, see a smoking gun in this, but but frankly, what I was appalled by was the treatment that Robert Mueller received by the Republicans on both of those committees. I mean, you have somebody who's dedicated his entire life to public service, who volunteered for Vietnam, has a bronze star, a, gold, a purple heart, and they treated him like dirt. They really did. They were completely disrespectful, and I thought that was appalling. What he said, never mind the issues of whether he could indict President Trump, which he said from the beginning he didn't have the power to do, what he said was a foreign power that's hostile to us intruded itself on our election and is continuing to do so. And he's also saying that the now President of the United States welcomed that intrusion by the Russians in our, in our election. They can win the war of who is the superpower without ever firing a shot if they destroy people's faith in our elections. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second, but let me ask you very quickly what I started with. Was this just kind of wash? It was wash. I watched the entire thing. I I think Democrats' theory is if we keep this narrative alive, if we keep that on television, then the public's going to increasingly want us to pursue immigration. Or immigration. <laughs> well, that that's too. The other, yeah. That's but, the other end of impeachment. the uh, political Impeachment. impeachment. Um, Did but, they accomplish that? Well, but I think what you're seeing is the public is wearing out on this. And, the, and this week, Trump had his highest approval ratings in six or eight months. At 44. I, at 47. Oh, no, I only saw 44. Well, he's at 47.50 right now in, in the, right. the national poll that was quoted in that. But on, on the question of impeachment, it's up to 60% of the country's opposed, which is the, also the so highest So is Nancy Pelosi, so it's not going to happen. It's also the no, highest it's ever been. So I mean, the, the, the strategy the here, I think, is not, yeah. is not helpful for Democrats. All right. Well, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, former Indiana senator, recently named an election security chief, even as rumors swirl once more that Coats could soon be on his way out. Veteran agency leader Shelby Pearson has been appointed to serve as the first election threats executive within the intelligence community. Coates says the intelligence community must properly align its resources to bring the strongest level of support to this critical issue, and that Pearson is the most qualified person to lead that mission. President Trump has repeatedly split with the intelligence community over whether Russia interfered in U.S. elections. Meanwhile, rumors resurfaced earlier this month that Trump is considering firing Coates, with whom he has often clashed. 
Mike O'Brien, does this appointment of an election security chief mean much if leadership in Washington isn't following through or if Dan Coats isn't at that agency in a few weeks? Well, it doesn't, yeah, I mean, no, it doesn't mean much at all because it's late, first of all. And it's late because, Robert, I, I agreed with Ann's account of Russia interfering with, with the election. Maybe not the Trump campaign welcoming that because well, there was no did. proof of that. He stood up There was literally the no camera. proof of it. Literally no proof, which Excuse is what Robert will fall. So he should have he should have ended and said, release the emails. Mueller should have ended his his testimony saying, Why am I still here? You should all be figuring out how to keep Russia from interfering in the next election, which on a bipartisan basis, this Congress and the previous one have completely failed to do. Well, a lot I'd, of presidential candidates were in town this week, and they were all for the National Urban League Conference, and they were all asked the same question, which is, what do you do before 2020? They can talk about what they do as president, but what do you do before 2020 to make sure this doesn't happen again? Well, I mean, the first thing you can do is make sure that each ballot system in every state is, is tamper-proof, okay? I mean, we still have states with no, with no, and we still have counties in Indiana with no paper trail of electronic ballots. That's step number one. I mean, it just stands to reason. And the other thing is to have some real training for the state election officers in what to look for when they start trying to hack into the systems. But if you have the paper trail, yeah. you, you at least back have a backup. There was a bipartisan group in Congress that was pushing legislation, thought they had a resolution where it would have required a paper trail, right. an auditable paper trail. Stymied. And the got White it. House... And said others no. said, well, they cited no concerns about states' rights oh, because yeah, traditionally, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but, but what Miller them. said is they right. found the seam between state oversight and federal oversight, and that's what foreign powers are taking advantage of. So. Well, the All right, finally, finally, our own Nikki Kelly reported this week on an issue near and dear to her heart. The fountain on Robert Orr Plaza outside the State House will be repaired this summer and once again put into service. That water feature and effort created under the Pence administration has been broken for over a year. So, Nikki Kelly, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you? I'm at like an 11. <laughs> I cannot so you're wait be out to there see as soon as it's ready to go. And kids and adults playing Drink in it. Soon. Can we raise our hands? I wouldn't encourage that. Yeah, that I, wanna, that I, I wouldn't do. I don't know how. I don't, I don't what think are we raising our hands about? Well, I, I didn't get to raise them earlier. Really. So we agree that this failure. is a great thing, and we're glad that you were bird dogging this from the beginning. All right, that's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at WFYI.org slash IWIR. Or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller, built on a 100-plus year foundation of legal service. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients stay ahead of a changing world, working to develop an understanding of each client's needs to help build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.